The parable of the prodigal son comes in Luke. Uh, in the beginning of Luke, Jesus is beginning to have conversations with people of the town. Uh, the Pharisee and scribes are beginning to put a little bit of pressure to him. He's feeling the wrenches and the pliers of what they're saying. Uh, it is one of 46 parables in the Bible. I did not know that there were that many, but it seems to be one of the more popular ones. Parable actually means in Greek to compare. And so when we look at the parables, there's usually a comparison of something that we're trying to get across. Jesus was definitely trying to get across to the Pharisees and scribes at that time, particularly in this parable, that he was looking that there would be a law-gospel distinction. He takes two characters, he takes three characters, he takes four characters, and begins to illuminate through a little moral spiritual story this, the, the parable of the prodigal son. Now, interestingly enough, we see ourselves not only in the prodigal son, the younger of the prodigal sons, but we see ourselves in the older of, of the two brothers. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take the time. Uh, I don't have that many pages. I, I only have 32 pages that I have to go through. So we'll, we'll, we'll try and go through them as, as quickly as possible. And what we want, we want to do is actually begin to look, look at some of the characters and what they represent in the parable. If it's one thing that I have begun to understand with doing a little bit more scripture searching and preparing for Sunday schools and Wednesday nights, is the scriptures are really, really great at connecting the dots. We, we would think that this passage over here has nothing to do with this passage or, or vice versa. And Charles Spurgeon once said, you know, if you open up anywhere in the Bible and you can't find Christ in that passage, then you're not studying the scriptures and searching the scriptures enough. So what we want to begin to do is we want to break down this parable so that you have an understanding of each of the characters that he represents. What's interesting, keep this in mind, he's talking to the Pharisees, he's talking to the people who would know the Old Testament scriptures. I mean, these guys were like the best of the best back then. They, they were the professional people who knew the scriptures in and out. And then Jesus is in the business of deconstructing what they know, and he's raising up a new covenant, and he says, these are the things I say to you. And so he elevates the ideas of what the Old Testament has, the foreknowledge of him coming, now he's here, now he's giving you, and quote-unquote, the gospel or the good news. So let's take a look at a couple of things. The term prodigal actually comes from two words in Latin that mean to go forth with money. And it doesn't mean necessarily to go forth with just money. It means to waste your money. And I mean, and not in any kind of like, well, you know, I bought two lottery tickets, I only had $5 left. No, no, it is a complete waste of your money. And so when we're looking at terms like prodigal, it indicates the quality of a person who wastes it by spending it with reckless abandon. And there's a difference between someone who's abandoning and reckless abandon. You got nothing to lose in reckless abandon, right? And so he's out there and going through it. So he's, he's nervous. The, the Pharisees are nervous because they say, hey, look at the publicans and sinners, they're drawing near to this guy. He, they're, they're eating with this guy. He's receiving these people unto himself and as his own. What's interesting is he uses the term that he's eating with them. What is one thing that everybody on the planet does? They have to eat. And so he's, he's a universal idea that he's eating with these, these people. The interesting thing is the, 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 the scribes and Pharisees were not sinless in any way, shape, or form. As a matter of fact, they were self-righteous. And so we want to deconstruct again the idea behind the parable, each of the characters, and then what we'll do is we'll come to some parabolic conclusions on what it means to have a law-gospel, law-grace distinction from the parable itself. All right, so let's take a look at the sun. 
In typical Jewish fashion, the older brother would get double the inheritance as his siblings. In this case, the older brother would get two-thirds and the younger brother only a third. The younger brother says to his dad, I want my money now. Remember the commercial for, was it J.D. Wentworth? I want my money now. Yet what he's saying in that reality is, you have become dead to me. If there's been any inheritance, you usually get the inheritance after someone passes away. So the bequeath you something, we're instructed to bequeath a little something to our kids for their future. But he says to his dad, you're dead to me. I, I don't want any more of what you have to offer. You've given me what, what you're supposed to give me. Now I want my one third. And what's interesting is he almost goes to the point, if not right on the cusp of being an entitlement mentality. It's, it's, you're going to give it to me anyway. You owe it to me. Give it to me now. And the entitlement mentality leads him from a place of haughtiness to a place of absolute humility and bitterness. And so we have to keep those things in mind as the Jewish boy says to his father. I have a question for the fathers that are here today or mothers. How many of you would have your son or daughter come up to you and say to you, I want one third of my inheritance now and I want you to give it to me now? We would most likely laugh in their face, would we not? We'd say, thank you very much, go get me a cup of coffee and don't forget to vacuum the, the, your, your room. Okay, the, the interesting thing is, he, do, he doesn't do that at all. And so my, my question is, if we were to look at in, in modern day vernacular and parlance, was this kid ADD? Was he ADHD? Was he anxious? Was he depressed? Was he frustrated? Was he all the things that we take you know, medications for today that he was a little bit nutty and saying, I want my stuff now? Or was he suffering with a super huge case of being discontent? Now, I'm going to tell you, it's my thought process, that he was a malcontent to, the, to a massive degree, as we are all malcontent to a massive degree. And so we have to take that into, uh, into consideration. One of the things that we've been working through in our Sunday school class is this thing called the hedonic treadmill. We're always doing something on what, what's the bigger, better deal for me? What's in it for me? We're, we're FOMO, fear of missing out. You know, I'm in the business of comparison. And what we know is that those things have a tendency to cause a massive amount of consternation and problems. And it does. It causes some anxiety, especially when we're in the business of comparison. But he compares himself to the world and says, I want my money because he knows what he's going to do with his money. It's already pre-planned. He's not going to the stock market to invest it. He's not going to start an orphanage. He's going to rock and roll and party till the cows come home. And that's exactly what he knows he's going to do. So there's no mistaking what this character is involved with. What's interesting is it proves to him and it proves to the rest of us that self-absorption can cause a lot of problems. And when we find ourselves in the midst of sin and we find ourselves going against what the word of God has to say, we find ourselves in, in a season of discontent, we are going to do what, exactly what Jonathan Edwards says. We always do exactly what we want to do according to how it's going to make us feel at any given moment. And that's a problem because we, we get absorbed in the moment and we don't look out what's going out in the distance. We tend to be what we call myopic. What is right in front of us right now? And we, we make decisions based on what's in front of us right now, not what is necessarily going to be better for us. This kid knew what he was going to do. Did he ever consider, holy mackerel, there's an end to the party? Right? There's always an end to the party. Every great party comes to an end. 
right? Because then it becomes the beginning of another great party. But it has to come to an end at some point. He knows what path he's taking. So he's off to the races. The father gives him the money. Here's the problem. Have you ever been to a great party and then the refreshments end? And then the Doritos are gone? And then the pizza's gone? And then the music stops? What does everybody do? They leave the party. And that's exactly what this kid does. He leads a riotous life. He's the life of the party. The problem is this. Once the money runs out, the funny runs out. No money, no funny. And this is where he now begins to see himself in the greater picture of, where are my friends? Well, the scripture tells us that no greater friend are you than to lay the life down. And my friends are what? They stick closer than a brother. Where did his friends go when the party was over? They scattered. Hardly friends at all. But if you've ever been to a party at someone else's house and you have no idea who they are, those Doritos, pizzas, beer and pop, all this stuff, all good. Music's good. TV's good. Entertainment's good. But as soon as it ends, you flee that party just like somebody else does. And that's exactly what this kid did. Now, I don't know exactly what riotous living this kid does because it's a parable. But let's, let, let's take it for what he did. He got crazy. I mean, there was, there was a no bars hold kind of attitude. He had the money. He could afford all the good things. And that's exactly what he did. He was riotous. He was prodigal. He took his money and he wasted it with reckless abandon. There was nothing left. Right? I'm so broke I can't afford to pay attention. He didn't have two dimes to rub together. He was done. Now, here's the interesting thing. What does it profit a man to gain the world, yet lose his soul? He gained everything that the culture and the world would tell you that was good at that moment, right? Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. And he imbibed and, and ate and all that kind of thing until there was nothing left, and his friends helped him do it, and what good friends he had to help him do all that partying, right? Hey, you got to go to the store, we're running out of this. And get to the store and run out of this. No more money. Here's the problem. He lost the glorious days of champagne and filet mignon. And if you've ever had champagne and filet mignon, it's better than burger, fries, and Coke. Burger, fries, and Cokes are better than dumpster diving. But here's a young Jewish boy who now has to find his way into the working world again. And what does he do? He goes somewhere where he's humiliated beyond belief. So there's four humiliations for a young Jewish boy finding himself in the hog pen. Number one, he subjected himself to a pagan. If we look at the preceding parable, when we're talking about the Good Samaritan, which is worth investigating, there's a reason why he's humiliated when it comes down to submitting himself and subjecting himself to the authority of a pagan. The Jews of that time did not think that that was very lofty at all. As a matter of fact, they thought the pagan was very low. Number two, he had to feed the pagan's pigs. What do we know about Jews even today? What don't they eat? They don't eat pork. They don't eat pigs. So imagine, not only are you humiliated from that standpoint, but the fact is, now you're feeding what you would never eat yourself. And so now we have a problem. Now we're starting to feel exactly what the pressure is. We're, we're, we're getting it to cave in on us. Our, our chest is becoming a little bit more compressed with the humiliation that he's beginning to suffer. Think of a time for a just quick moment here in a flash at a time that you've been humiliated beyond belief and the feeling that encompasses you. It's not like a warm, fuzzy blanket at a campfire. No, it's more like a bucket of cold water at the campfire and you got hit in the face with it. It's humiliating. 
Humiliating. Number two, he's not eat, or number three, he's not even eating as well as the pigs. Now that's got to be humiliating because he doesn't eat pigs. He's not supposed to eat pigs. The pigs are eating better than him. So now he realizes in a caste system that he's lower than what he values as low. That's a problem. That's humiliating in and of itself. And number four, no one gives him food, not even the slop. So he comes to this conclusion. Even my father's servants are treated better than this. So he looks at what he would never participate in. He realizes the caste system that he finds himself in lower than the swine. And then comes to realize, I've got to come to my senses. And the scripture says, he comes to his senses. Which means now he thinks about what is going on, the decision that he makes, the gravity, the weight, the encompassing of the bad decisions that says, look it, this is no good. I am in a bad, bad place. There is nothing good that can come from this at all. Right? Remember we talked to the one time on Wednesday, what good can come out of Jerusalem, right? What good can come out of feeding pigs that are eating better than me? He realizes that he has sinned against his father. Is this not the great revelation that we have as someone who's walking around lost? And then we come to our spiritual senses that we begin to realize that we have sinned against our heavenly father. And that's the analogy. Remember, keep this in mind. He's talking to the Pharisees and the scribes. So every allegory, every little type and shadow that he's putting inside of this parable, they should understand and they should understand it in full because these are the things that they were teaching to the Jewish people at that time. And so when they're talking about do this, do that, jump higher, run faster, try harder, you got to give your best, you're not working hard enough. They understood that. And then along comes Jesus and begins to deconstruct all of these ideas. He hems us into the idea that, you know what, we're not going to keep the law. You mean to tell me, do you really think, does anybody here really think that the scribes and the Pharisees of that time kept the law perfectly? No. What's interesting, we'll jump ahead just a quick minute here. What's interesting is the son has no idea, number one, that his brother was with prostitutes when, he, when he's giving all his prostitutions and complaints to his dad. But he names something that would be the most carnal of carnal things. He's out there doing things that we ought not to be doing, and he's doing it with prostitutes and whores. How does his brother know that? Because his brother didn't talk to him. There was no communication. He's still working in the field trying to obey and, and, and do well. But what's interesting is Jesus uses the word prostitute there for a very, I think, for a very simple reason. Who did they bring to Jesus and throw down at his feet and said, hey, we caught this prostitute in the very act of adultery? And they all pick up the rocks, they're going to stone him. And he says, okay, let any one of you guys who are so innocent, let you, let you cast the first stone. What's marvelous about that little illustration is that the older ones, they say, drop the rocks first. Because they were old enough and, and, and sage enough and wise enough and experienced enough to do what? He's got us on this one. I, I, you know, every, everyone who drops a rock said this, I'm guilty. And that's exactly what he says. I'm guilty. We're all guilty. He got the, he got the scribes and Pharisees at that point. He got the accusers at that point to, to, to realize I'm no better off than anybody else than, than the lady right here. You know, there's one of the things they say, you know, he wrote something in the dirt. I always think he wrote this. Watch this. <laughs> now, we, we, we don't know what he wrote. We, we can speculate. But what do you think he wrote? Watch this. You know, and, and I'm sure there was a little bit of this. 
and thank you, Jesus, that was good, <laughs> right? We, we don't know, but if we're going to infer, I would say it would always be something positive on behalf of the, the prostituting sinner, who is we, that we would say, thank you, Lord. Where, where are he, and he asks the question, where are your accusers now? So he, he comes into his senses and he realizes he has to go home. When we run from the law, we have a tendency to not come home. When we run from grace, we have a tendency to want to come home. Because grace forgives the sins that we have committed. So think about the idea. He says he comes to his senses, he realizes he has sinned against his father, and he wants to go home. Think of every time when you were a little kid and something went wrong. What did you think in the back of your mind? I just want to go home. The Wizard of Oz. There's no place like home. And so the home becomes something different. He wants to run back to his father's estate. He wants to run back to his father's arms. He's already been humiliated. He begins to recite what he's going to say to his father. I've sinned against you, father, and only against you have I sinned. I'm not worthy to even be called your son anymore. Put me in line of your servants because they, they're doing better than me. At least they're not humiliated because they know their place. They have food to eat. They probably have a hot shower. They probably have a cot to lay on. They have things. Things that I don't even have anymore. And so he goes off to home. So let's switch our attention now to the father. What father in their right mind would say to their kid, here's one third of your inheritance? I wouldn't. My kids are sitting up here. Please do not ask me for one third of your inheritance yet. <laughs> you will get it when it's coming. Your mother and I are going to try and blow every penny of it. <laughs> Just kidding. We'll leave, you a few, we'll leave you a couple things. But the interesting thing is this. There's a reason why his father gives it to him. Because the illustration is this. It shows us the reflection of the amazing indulgence that God shows towards us. You want to know why? Because even when we are sitting directly against him, he allows us to fail and to fail miserably. And get out of the way because Paul may not be the chief of sinners. He might have to get behind me and probably you and for sure you. And, and so the idea is, Look at the indulgence that God even grants us once we've made a profession of faith. Unbelievable to think that he's so long-suffering towards us. So there's a reflection of exactly what the father represents in letting this kid have his indulgence. Now, this is what I find interesting. Five particular things, maybe six particular things about the father. Number one, he sees the boy coming home from afar. Two things with that. Number one, does it mean he was looking for him? Yeah, man, it was this kid. Now, I don't know when my boy's coming home from college, but if he calls me up and says, yeah, I'll be home, I start looking at my watch about the time I think he needs to be home. I want to look from a near to when his car pulls in the driveway. I'm not looking for him on 96. The father, it says, was looking for him from afar. Now, I find that to be really nice because I know a God that has written my name in the Lamb's Book of Life and has seen me from afar. How far? Before the very foundation of the world, he knew my name would be written in that Lamb's Book of Life. So now we have something that says we have a Heavenly Father who is looking for us from afar. That's awesome. If you've had a little kid, don't you pay attention to your kid when he's running around? 
And, and I remember I took my boy one time to the, to the bookstore, and, and my wife said, keep an eye on him, he's going to be okay. And I took my eye off him for one second, and paranoia set in immediately. I'm the kind of guy that if I'm in the middle of the store and I want my son, I'm going to yell his name louder than, the, than any PA system. And I found him about six minutes later and said to him, don't tell your mother. Right? Because then I have some other stuff i got to deal with. He was looking for his son from afar. How about this one right here? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew your name from afar. Man, that's catastrophic. That's eternally catastrophic. I don't want to do that. I don't want to have God say to me, depart from me, you work. But Lord, we did all these great things in your name. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew your name. I was never intimate with your name. I was never writing your name in the Lamb's book of life from afar. That's tough, especially when we juxtapose those two things where the Father sees us from afar and he's there to, to receive us versus he looks at us from afar and says, I never knew your name. You can walk. You don't need to run. As a matter of fact, I'd crawl if I were you. Slow it down. Number two, he runs to the boy. Isn't it God's upside-down economy that God would run to us? That he's out there chasing us? Pastor Clark used, likes to use the word, the hound of heaven is, is chasing us, right? Once he gets on your side, he's chasing us. Because the scripture is very plain when it says, no one seeketh after God. So now we have the upside-down economy of a Jewish father who's in robes running to his prodigal son. Not a very distinguished look for a Jewish father at all. Now, I don't wear robes. I've never worn robes. But I can't imagine I'm going to break the 100-yard dash fast wearing a robe running. He's running. He's breaking all of these economic rules that we would look at today and say, what are you running for, man? It's just your boy coming home. He runs to his boy. Number three, he hugs and kisses his son all over in celebration. I still hug and kiss my kids hello and goodbye. doesn't matter. They're my kids. They'll be my kids forever. They're the third greatest gift that God's ever given me, my wife being number one. And I love to hug and kiss her hello and goodbye. She's mine. God gave her to me, and I'm with her. And my kids, God gave those kids to me. And God gave me to them. I'm going to hug and kiss them every chance I get because there will be a day when there's no more of that. This is what blows my mind. He doesn't admonish the boy with I told you so's. There's no interrogation, no denigration, no investigation. When my kids go to the mailbox, I say, where are you going? Who are you going with? How long are you going to be gone? What are you going to do out there? Dad, I'm just going to the mailbox. It's right over there. But the father doesn't do that, does he? When we come to our loving father's arm, does he say, okay, <laughs> Kyle. Now, where were, you back in, where were you back in 85, Kyle? Okay, he, he doesn't do any of that at all. He accepts us with an open arm because the sin debt has been paid in full. Do you really think God needs to ask a rhetorical question like, hey, where you been? He knows where we've been. That's why his son went to the cross, because he knows where we've been, and he knows what we're doing, he knows what we're thinking, and he knows where we're going. That's the crazy part. So, where's the money I gave you, by the way? Uh, do you have an Excel spreadsheet with the details and receipts? Yeah, doesn't do any of that. Nor does our Heavenly Father say that to us, which is nice. He puts a robe on him. 
Are we not robed in the righteousness of Christ? He puts a ring on him to signify royalty and an acceptance and a replacement back into the family. Do we not have the ring of Christ? Because we're, what more, we're children of the king. That means we're royalty. We can never be removed from that. God is our heavenly father, which means we're a child of the king. And if he gave his only begotten son, what more can he give to us but eternal life and love and acceptance unconditionally? This is the best part. He puts sandals on the boy. Now, the Pharisees would know what this means. The sandals represent he was no longer a slave by having no sandals on his feet. He's a taken person. And we're having the sandals that Christ, because we're accepted into the family of Christ from the very foundation of the world. Our sandals, our robe, and our rings are all there telling the world we have a heavenly father. We have a double imputation. My unrighteousness gets cast onto Christ. His righteousness gets put onto me. That's the robe of righteousness. My feet are covered by the sandals of, of the shed blood of Christ. I'm off the slave market of sin. And now I'm a bond servant. I'm a bond slave to Christ. And these things are all allegorical. The Pharisees knew what this meant. So Jesus just keeps turning the screws on these guys nonstop. Think about the kid. Think about his lostness. Think about what the father does in accepting him back. He's running. He's indistinguished. He's breaking these rules. He's kissing his kid. He's making sure that everybody knows, hey, this is my boy. My boy has come home. My boy, not you, I don't care about your boy, my boy has come home. And that's what he's saying. He orders a celebration. My son was once dead, now he's alive again. There isn't a parent here who wouldn't love to proclaim that my son is alive again. He was lost, and now he's alive. My boy has come home. My lineage, my love, my everything has come home in my boy, my namesake, my genetics my past, my future. He has come home. He's come home to a welcoming father with open arms, just like we can come home to the open arms of Christ and our father. J.C. Rye once said, one single soul saved shall outlive and outweigh all the kingdoms of this modern world. So now let's turn to the fatted calf. Not usually people talk about the fatted calf in this story, but it's actually the best part of the story. There is no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. And what does he do? He takes not just the calf, he takes the fatted calf, the prized calf. God doesn't just use any bull and goat. He takes his only son and sheds his blood for the remission of our sins. That is the fatted calf in the story. It is Christ and him crucified. A celebration of a sinner coming home to the Lord. God did not spare his only son for the remission of our sins. We are the sinner, that is me. We are saved, that is through Jesus. The sacrifice was Calvary, and the celebration is eternal security. All in one line that says, kill the fatted calf, the prize calf. It wasn't that he had a choice of how many calves. There was one calf. It wasn't like God said, well, let's get him. No, no, no. He had one son. It wasn't like he could pick one. Uh, I don't know. One. I love my boy, man. I love my daughter. I don't know if I want to give up my daughter. I don't want to know if I want to give up my son. It's tough. One, he had to give it up. Let's take a look at the older brother. Not so relaxed at all, right? Okay, was he jealous? Mm, 
doesn't say he was jealous, but he said he was angry. And I'll tell you what, the jealousy and the anger starts soon as we start with the whole bigger, better deal. What's in it for me? Comparison, right? Facebook, social media is not good for your mental health. Get off it. Too much comparison. Everybody's showing you their highlight reel while you're sitting in a puddle of disappointment. Get off of social media. That's just a blurb. That's not in the thing here. Okay. The older brother attitudes illustrates the judgmental spirit of the Pharisees who were annoyed at the presence of a sinner. So when we talk about him saying to his dad, hey, he's out there partying with all these whores. Again, we've already, we've already done this. So to reiterate it very quickly, how does he know that? But he, the parable picks something that we would say. He, he didn't say he's out there playing the ponies. He, you know, he, he's out there at 7-Eleven you know, around the corner. He didn't say that. What he said was he picks the most, probably, degradatory thing of that, that time, right? The most carnal, fleshy, anti-spiritual thing he can think of at that particular time, and picks that. But as Tullian Tavidian says, why is it that the prostitutes, publicans, sinners, and thieves get the gospel before the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees? Because they need it more than anybody, right? They're the dregs. Christ didn't come to spy out our sins. He came to relieve us of those sins. And if you're suffering with what the, young, older, the older brother did is with a really venomous case of self-righteous, then we have our own set of problems. And it is my contention that he is suffering discontent more than the brother. Because he has everything there. He's supposedly following the rules. But Father, I've, I've never left you. I've, I've done everything you've asked me to do. So you put away the garden hose. You clean the shovels. You, you muck the stalls. You, you did everything I've asked you to do. I mean, every dotted every I, right, right? Cross the T's, every little tittle, you've done all that stuff. No, he probably hasn't, but again, it, it, it's, it's parabolic, so we can just look at it for what it says. No one does all those things. But he says to his dad, you know, I've been here doing this whole thing. Where's the goat? Where's even a, a, a baby goat, a kid? Now, what's interesting is this. He doesn't use the term, where's my fatty calf? He picks something lower than that. He picks a goat. But in the realm of, there has to be a shedding of blood between bulls and goats. And so he does pick something. The Pharisees should have picked on this. But it was less than that fatty calf. It was less than the number one prize that the father could have sacrificed. He says, you've been here the whole time. There's nowhere in, there, there's nowhere in the story where, where, where the, uh, the older brother or the dad says, or the older brother says to his dad, you know, I've asked you a bunch of times for a party on Friday night. Not one time. His dad said, I've been here the whole time. Here's what's interesting. The older brother has not lost anything. He has two-thirds of his father's inheritance coming to him. He hasn't lost anything. He's discontent. He's in the business of comparison. Come on, man. I'm pointing at Dwayne. Come on, Dwayne. Right? It's, it's, it's hard. For me, at least, interpretively, it's hardcore that someone who thinks that they can maintain the law is better than those of us that know we can't maintain the law. And that self-righteousness is a venom unto itself. And all venom is poison us. And so we have to pay attention to that. So as we begin to wind down, I, I want to read at least the parabolic comparisons between law, the older boy, who, by the way, is not only angry with his brother, but he's angry with his father. For what reason? Does he not have food? Does he not have gainful employment? Does he not have a place to sleep? If he would have asked his father, his father would have said, I've been here the whole time. You, you want to go? Go ahead and go, get your friends together. Have some hummus and han bread. I don't care what you do. But he, he never says that. He's angry. His anger blinds his better judgment. 
Raise your hand if your anger has ever blinded your better judgment. As Pastor Clark would say, those of you who didn't raise your hand, you're lying. So we have, we have a problem. So let's look at the difference between the law and grace. The law condemns, grace saves. The law accuses, grace acquits. The law is rigid and inflexible. God's grace is the surgical scalpel that cuts out the cancerous effects of sin out of our soul. The law is a reflection of God's perfect holiness and perfection. Be like my Father in heaven who is perfect. But grace is otherworldly for an upside-down economy in which Christ propitiates the sins of the thief, the harlot, the publican, the liar, the cheater, the addict, the politician and teacher, the doctor, the mom, the grandma, the janitor, even the preacher, the sinner just like you and me. Law demands justice. Grace is unmerited favor. Law can create self-righteousness. Grace leaves no room to boast. The law imprisons. Grace liberates. There's close to 1,500 laws on the books. Only one is needed in grace for the remission of sins. And for you rock and rollers out there, I fought the law and the law won. With grace, it's amazing how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to read something from Tully into Vision, and I think it sums up pretty much the gospel the way we need to be understanding it. The gospel liberates us to be okay with not being okay. We know we're not okay, though we try very hard to convince ourselves and other people that we're basically fine. The gospel effectively tells us, relax, it's finished, the pressure's off. Because of the gospel, we have nothing to prove or protect. We can stop pretending. We can take off our masks and be real. The gospel frees us from trying to impress people, appease people, or measure up for people. The gospel frees us from the burden of trying to control what other people think about us. It frees us from the miserable, unquenchable pursuit to make something of ourselves by the using of others. When I use the term gospel, you can substitute the word grace. The gospel grants us the strength to admit we're weak and needy and restless, knowing that Christ's finished work has proven to be all the strength, fulfillment, and peace we could ever want and more. Because Jesus is our strength, our weaknesses don't threaten our sense of worth and value. Now we're free to admit our wrongs and weaknesses without feeling as our flesh is being ripped off our bones. When we understand that our significance, security, and identity are all anchored in Christ, we don't have to win. We're free to lose. And nothing in this broken world can beat a person who isn't afraid to lose. We'll be free to say crazy, risky, counterintuitive stuff like to live as Christ and to die as gain. Real, pure, unadulterated freedom happens when the resources of the gospel crush any sense of need to secure ourselves for anything beyond what Christ has already secured for us. What we see here in our lives is that love inspires what the law demands. The law prescribes good works, but only grace can produce them. Gratitude, generosity, honesty, compassion, acts of mercy and self-sacrifice, all requirements of the law spring unsummoned from a forgiven heart. This is how God works on us. He picks us, the least deserving, out of the crowd, insists upon being in a relationship with us, and creates, creates in us a new heart miraculously capable of pleasing, loving, and obeying him.